0: Good morning. morning. This morning, we continue in our series in the book of Revelation. And as we're in this book, it's so important to remember, and I will remind you of this continually, that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we study this book, Resist the temptation to try to predict the future. Resist the temptation to get caught up in the other minor themes, because the major theme, the significant theme, is that of Jesus Christ. Amen? We're going to see today, as we are in chapter 1, finishing out the chapter, starting in verse 9, we're going to see that John receives a revelation of Jesus Christ— Before the letters to the churches are given, before any of the visions of the future are shared, the very first thing that John will experience is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is very important to us because, you see, you can study the Word of God, you can study prophecy, you can study the epistles, the history, the poetry of the Bible, the law. But if you haven't had and experienced... A revelation of Jesus Christ, it will all be fairly meaningless. You see, the things of the Spirit cannot be discerned by a person who is, as the Bible describes, carnal, a carnal mind. Someone who doesn't have the Spirit. So maybe this morning you're thinking, Pastor Tim, I don't know if I have the Spirit. Well then, the very simple thing is we open in prayer. Ask the Lord to give you ears to hear. Ask the Lord to show you the things that you couldn't see and understand the things that you couldn't understand without his help. He'll impart to you the Spirit, even if you don't know him yet as your personal Lord and Savior. He will reveal to you who he is so that you may give your life to him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you as we approach your word with reverence today not only respect, but awe as we consider who you are, not just in our lives, but in the entire universe and all of creation. And it's cause for us to worship and to fall down at your feet as we consider this. And even as we prepare ourselves to receive communion today, we want to have the appropriate sense of awe. We can become so casual in our worship and in our approach to your presence that sometimes we forget who you are. So I pray that in our study this morning, that that would be the one thing that we really take home with us, an understanding of how great and awesome you are in all of your glory, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start in verses 9 through 11. We'll read that section there of chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. And there, John writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This really begins the the vision proper. Before this was really more of an introduction, it was John sort of telling us that he had received the revelation and sharing with us who God is. And kind of the first part of that chapter is really John sharing with us what God shared with him. When we get into verse 9, at this point, it's really John just sort of telling us, God gave me this vision to share with you. And then he goes into the vision. And so it's not so much like the Gospels or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters from John, whereas the beginning of the book might be similar somewhat. This is really now John just recording what happened. As he receives these this vision and, and these different visions come to him in the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's recording them, he's writing them down, and he's told up front to write them down and to send them to seven churches in particular. We'll talk more about those seven churches starting next week. But John was called to be God's messenger, and we can relate to that, can we not? We've been called to be God's messengers. We have a message to share with the world. Now, John was given a revelation, but we've received a revelation of Jesus Christ in that we know who he is, amen? So when you share with others what the word of God says about Jesus and who Jesus is in your life and the testimony of Jesus in your life, You are, like John, becoming a messenger. It's important that you understand that the word messenger in Greek is the same as the word for angel. An angel is an angelic messenger. So you'll see those words interchanged a bit, even in this chapter. But a messenger is simply someone who's given a message to deliver. And we have as well. But John, as he's approached, as he's on the island of Patmos, it says, suffering persecution. Now, I don't think in this country, as of now, we really understand the word persecution. You might say, but Pastor Tim, I mean, days are becoming darker and more difficult to be a Christian. I read the same news articles that you've read. Where people are saying things like, Christians are the most dangerous people in America to our democracy. I'm hearing the words of the demonically inspired leaders in our country suggesting things like that we're fascists because we believe what the Bible says about life and about gender and about love and about what's right and what's wrong. We're being labeled by those in power at the moment as dangerous. Now, we understand that. But that is not persecution, not yet. What that is, is slander, insult, mocking, ridicule. And Jesus endured all of that, and he never responded in kind. I'm going to pause. Because the greatest temptation you're going to have in these times of, again, I'm not calling it persecution yet. Let's say tribulation, insult. In these times, the greatest temptation that the devil's going to throw at you is to get you to act like those fools that say those things about us. So what you have to do is you literally have to get up every morning and pray, Lord, I don't want to sound as foolish as the people that say these foolish things about me. Lord, I don't want to respond in kind. I I, I don't want to respond the way that the world would respond to being insulted. I want to respond the way Jesus responded to persecution, to tribulation, to insult. That is how I want to respond when people say all manner of evil against me. I like this scripture. It just came to mind. In, in 1 Peter and in chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter writes, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Can I hear an amen? Oh, isn't that difficult? Oh, I myself, even recently within the last few hours, have probably been guilty of it. Thinking and saying the things that we feel about our leaders and the people that say all manner of evil against us, I don't appreciate being called a fascist or even a semi-fascist. I don't appreciate being considered a threat to democracy because I'm a patriot or because I disagree with these crazy people who have somehow gotten into power. I don't appreciate that. And I feel I have the right to open up my mouth or go online and share my opinion. But I don't. You know why? Because Jesus is the example. He didn't retaliate. So if you find yourself retaliating, you've already lost. You've already given way to temptation. Oh, Pastor Tim, what are we supposed to do? Share the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. They'll go away. They don't want to hear it anyway. You really want to get rid of these people? Very simple. Tell them the gospel message. One of two things will happen. They'll get saved. Praise God. They won't. They'll leave you alone. Praise God. But don't go tit for tat. Too many Christians are falling into this. And so that's my first little practical exhortation here this morning. John was suffering persecution. We haven't gotten there quite yet. Not in this country. In many countries certainly. But not here. But when and if we do, it's the same thing. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. The idea is you do not engage in this type of foolishness. It's not going to get you anywhere except aggravated. Pray for them. Pray for those that despitefully use you. Love your enemies. That's tough. John was living that life. You know, he didn't have a vigilante group that when they came to arrest him and bring him to the island of Patmos, they came out like ninjas throwing stars. Took out the guards, took out the people. Because that's what I would have done. That's what you would have probably done. Fight back. We would have probably engaged and and patted ourselves on the back for being so effective at it. It's so easy to get into the flesh. John was suffering on the island of Patmos. He was exiled because he had been testifying to God's message and God's person. If you're going to be persecuted, if you're going to be put into exile or canceled or deplatformed or unfriended, let it be for sharing the gospel message, not some political message or your opinion or sending some insulting meme. He was exiled because he had been testifying to the truth. Now, we're told here that he says of himself, I was on the island of Patmos, which is an island in the middle of the Aegean Sea, Okay, so between Greece and Turkey says, because of the Word of God. Well, that means that he was sharing the Word of God. Not a problem. There's never a time ever in life when it's not appropriate to share the Word of God. What portion of the Word of God? Well, the Spirit has to lead you. But the Word of God is always an appropriate thing to share. As a Christian, that's what we do. But also the testimony of Jesus. Now, the testimony of Jesus is in the Word of God, but the testimony of Jesus is a little bit more or something in addition to the Word of God, in that it's your testimony of how Jesus has worked in and through your life. The testimony of what Jesus has done for the world on the cross. Now that's in the Word of God, so you can share the Word of God and share the testimony of Jesus, but it's important that you also share the testimony of Jesus in your personal life, how God has changed you how God has loved you, how God is working in your heart and your life. As you do that in love, telling the truth in love, your enemies will either become your allies or they will walk away. Or they'll lock you up and throw you on an island somewhere. But you have to do what God has called you to do. That's what John did, and it cost him something. But he had proved that he could be trusted with a revelation of God's message in God's person. God is not going to give you any further revelation of his character and person until you can be trusted to share what you already know. Think about it. When you're training somebody, when you're teaching someone, you don't give them more before they have been able to digest and assimilate what they already have received. That's true in your training, it's true in athletics, it's true in many disciplines, it's true in music. If you bombard somebody with things they can't possibly absorb, then you just you shut them down. But if you share the things you know, the things that God has already revealed to you, God is able to give you further revelation of his word. So I want you to understand the reason John received a revelation of Jesus Christ that's recorded in the Bible. Because he had received so much revelation about Jesus, having walked with Jesus, having talked with Jesus, having sat down at a table and eaten with Jesus, having traveled with Jesus and studied with Jesus, he had received more revelation than I ever will already. But he had been faithful to that revelation, which qualified him to receive further revelation. So do you want to know more about Jesus? Say amen then take what you already know and put it into practice and share it with others. And God will see you as a vessel, a conduit for being able to share more revelation. So, John was in the Lord's presence. What does that mean? Well, we're in the Lord's presence where two or three are gathered. He's in our midst. Well, what I think it really means here is he was worshiping God. And, you know, it's so hard to worship God when you're suffering. And he was suffering. Isolation, alienation, persecution. They don't like me. And yet he was worshiping God. You know, one of the great things that can happen in your life, as other people push you out, you have more time for him. One of the things, uh, right after January 6th, after, after the thing they called an election, I found myself just saying, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with news. And I was a news junkie. Now I read the news. I get it. I, I see what's important. I dismiss the things that are not, and I go on with my day. But I would sit and literally listen all day. And just digest all of this news, and just take it all in. And it wasn't a lot of it was was true. Some of it was not, you know. And you're just taking all this stuff, and you. And I found that it was eating up all of my time. And then I realized after that, I said, you know, uh, I, I need to do something better with my time than that. And I started replacing the time that I spent doing those things with more productive things not just studying God's Word and praying and worshiping, but other things that were more productive to my psyche and to my life. But the thing is, as you push out those things and constantly going back and forth with people and Twitter feuds, as you take those things and you say, I'm not playing this game anymore, now all of a sudden you have all this time. To do what? Well, John used it to worship. I'm not saying when he arrived at Patmos he didn't say, oh, good, finally I can worship and be left alone, but maybe... Think about all the extra time you have since you can't watch Disney Plus anymore. And Marvel movies and all the Star Wars and all this stuff is all so woke that even myself, the greatest nerd on the planet for that stuff, doesn't bother anymore. Anyone who knows me knows I love the Lord of the Rings. I mean, I I believe that quoted chapter and verse. But I'm not watching this garbage that they have now because what have they done? They're using something beautiful to promote something horrible. And it's not even a temptation to watch it because I don't have room in my life for nonsense. John was in the presence of the Lord on the Lord's day. There's never a good thing that can take the place of a God thing. And it's a God thing to be in God's presence on the Lord's day. Amen? We're here. Amen? And that's where he was. Despite persecution, God's own voice commanded him to record this book, the book of Revelation. How could he hear God's voice if he was distracted from the voice of God by the world? If he was caught up in petitions and campaigns and news programs, if if he got into all of that stuff and conspiracy theories and YouTube videos, oh, can I just encourage you for a minute? It's called YouTube. You might as well read Self Magazine. Listen, look to God in these difficult times. Put those things aside. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. You need to take the things of this world and push them out so you make room to hear God's voice. He heard God's voice, and God even directed that the message be sent to seven churches, pretty detailed, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches in what is today Western Turkey. At that time, it was Corporal Proconsular Asia, a Roman province. And so he knows exactly what he's going to do, and he's about to find out all kinds of stuff he didn't know. But the most important thing is that he was in the Lord's presence on the Lord's day. And so first John is called to see something. He's called to see something. If you see something, say something, right? If you see Jesus, say something about Jesus. Here's what we see in verses 12 through 18. Actually, maybe we'll just read 12 and 13. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. That is to see whoever was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, that's not a menorah. Those are separate lampstands. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That is a a humanoid, a person like a human, okay? Son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, And his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Pretty impressive sight. We'll see how he reacted to that in just a minute. In this section, at least in verses 12 through 13, John is seeing God's person, and he's seeing I'm sorry, God, uh, John is seeing God's person and he's seeing Jesus as the great high priest. Because we understand that Jesus was a prophet and that God spoke, God the Father spoke through him. We understand that he's a king, he's coming again to rule and reign. But do we remember that he's our great high priest? John is seeing God's person. He's seeing Jesus, the great high priest. The book of Hebrews introduces us to this concept, other books as well, but that Jesus is our great high priest, interceding, ever living to make intercession on our behalf. After having died on the cross for our sins, he rose again, ascended into heaven, where at this very moment he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. He is our intercessor, one mediator between God and man, the man, the God, man, Jesus Christ. And as a great high priest, as a priest, as a high priest, the role of the high priest was to intercede, to make intercession, to represent man before God. A prophet represents God before man. He did both. So the first thing John experiences concerning Jesus is his role, his office, his, his place as our high priest, the intercessor. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, he's standing among seven golden lampstands. Again, not a menorah, but they're placed in a circle. And we're told in verse 20 of this chapter, which we haven't gotten to just yet, that these are representative of, they are symbols of the seven churches, not surprisingly, that were just introduced in verse 11. They were planted in a rough circle within proconsular Asia. So if you take those seven churches and you connect the dots, you've got a rough circle around the area of western Turkey. What John sees is Jesus among the churches, dressed in the traditional garments of the high priest. And that's why Jesus is dressed in this vision the way he is. But he also saw something else. He didn't just see Jesus as our great high priest making intercession. Remember, this is a revelation of Jesus. We see Jesus as the high priest. He also sees Jesus as the glorified Christ. And we've read this already. We see here, Jesus doesn't look like we remember seeing Jesus or hearing about Jesus in the Gospels. Or even in the book of Acts. What we're seeing here is most closely linked to the way Jesus looked in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're familiar with that, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in his glory. But that was only a glimpse of who he really is in all of his glory. It's just a glimpse. Here, John experiences Jesus in all of his glory as the glorified Christ or Messiah, the Anointed One. Not only the high priest, not only our great high priest, but the glorified Christ, the Son of Man. His head and his hair are described, white like wool. But you know what? If you read Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, this is exactly the way the Ancient of Days was described, referring to God himself. We studied that a few months ago. And his eyes and his feet are very similar to an angel that actually appeared to Daniel in chapter 10. Now, there was an angel, but it's interesting that the description is similar. And I have found that when you see the heavenly scene depicted by the prophets, you almost always realize that the closer you get to the throne of God, even the created beings around the throne of God take on a degree of God's nature or character or vision. So the closer you get to the throne of God, the creatures that are around the throne have more and more of the things that make God who he is. And it's not because they're God, but they share some of the glory because they're so close to God. And so this description doesn't surprise us at all. And listen, his voice, it it sounded exactly the way Ezekiel in chapter one described the voice of almighty God. Exactly. Is that a surprise? Well, Scripture is consistent, if nothing else, right? So, the voice of God described in Ezekiel chapter 1 is the same voice of God in Revelation. And then we're told, as we go here into verse 16, we haven't read it yet, that in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, And his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Now, remember, this is a vision. It is not meant to be taken literally unless it's meant to be taken literally. That is, many times, most of the time, these very bizarre scenes are visions. They're symbols. And in a vision, you can see something that depicts something literal, but it's done in a way to paint a picture, which is in many times richer than describing it with words. And these symbols aren't foreign to us. We've we've certainly seen them before. But one of the things I can tell you is in verse 20 in this chapter, we'll get to it as we close, that we're told that the seven stars are the seven messengers, also called angels, of the seven churches. So the lampstands are the seven churches. We're told that again in verse 20. And we're also told that the stars represent the seven messengers of the seven churches. And those messengers could be the pastors of those churches, but it's the person who's responsible for bringing the message in those seven churches. It's nice to think that, or think of ourselves as ministry leaders, as being held in the hand of Jesus. That's where we want to be, amen? We certainly do. And then we're told out of his mouth came the double-edged sword. Now, those of you who know your Bibles, you know that the double-edged sword is a symbol in the New Testament used in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4. It also comes up again in chapter 19 of this book. It represents the word of God. The word of God is a double-edged sword dividing the joint and the marrow, the, the spirit, the soul, is a discerner of the thoughts, the intents of the heart, Hebrews tells us the word of God is a double edged sword. So the double edged sword comes out of his mouth. Not a surprise, not a hard image to interpret. The word of God. Well, of course, he's Jesus. He speaks. It's the word of God. But the word of God comes out of his mouth. Now, when he walked the earth, it is written. It is written. It is written. He was always speaking the word of God. In fact, let me say this. I don't think Jesus could say anything that wasn't the word of God. He is God after all. Amen. But that we're told there. And the other thing we're told is that his face was that of the son of righteousness. Now, son, that's S-U-N. The Sun. as brilliant as the Sun, And John uses a description to describe this great light. But, you know, if you're familiar with the book of Malachi in chapter 4, verse 2, actually, if you're familiar with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you probably said the son of righteousness risen with healing in his wings. So that comes from Malachi chapter 4. And so again, the images are consistent. We're going to see this consistency in the book of Revelation where the images are not new. They're a collection, like an anthology or a compilation of the Bible's symbolic greatest hits. And you read them and you're like, oh, I know that. The double-edged sword. Oh, I know that. The son of righteousness. And then you think, well, I never really heard about the stars or the lampstands. Well, that's why the book of Revelation tells us in verse 20 what they are. So is the book of Revelation difficult to understand? No. It's a challenge to study, but not a difficult thing to understand because it explains itself. Isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful when you're reading something and you think, oh, I I wonder, and then you see the next line. Oh. Sometimes you just need to get to the next line. Have you ever watched a movie with someone who... It's a murder mystery. And five minutes into the, who do you think did it? Well, we got two hours, and something tells me that it'll be at least an hour and a half before we have any idea. You're watching an Agatha Christie. You're watching Agatha Christie. Forget her. You're not, you're not even close. Unless you read the book, you don't know. But then that annoying person can say, well, who do you think? Oh, I think, you know, maybe the butler did it. Don't be that person. Read the next line. Read to the end of the chapter before you say, "Oh, what? These symbols are so difficult: stars, lampstands." I can't take it. I'm closing the book. No, not at all. Hang in there. We'll see it in a minute. But then we get to verses 17 and 18, and here uh, John has seen Jesus as the great high priest. He's seen Jesus as the glorified Christ, but he now he sees Jesus as the Son of God. Different descriptions of the same person in a wonderful description in Revelation. Of Jesus. In verses 17 and 18, check this out, it's kind of cool. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive. Forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades, the place of the dead. I feel like that deserves an amen. What a revelation of Jesus that is. If that's all we knew, and we know so much more than this, but if that's all we knew, it would be enough. It would be enough to know that he died and rose again. Hallelujah. It would be enough to know that he's the first and the last, the creator of all things. It would be enough to know that he's alive. It would be enough to know that he holds the keys, that is, he has authority over death and hell itself. That would be enough. But that's the Son of God. That's Jesus, the Jesus we worship. Now, John's response was really the only acceptable response to being in God's presence, falling down. It's interesting, for a while back in the 80s and into the 90s, there was this fad going through the church as being slain in the spirit. It's interesting, I would read the Bible and try to find that somewhere, and I saw the exact opposite, really. I saw John fall at the feet of Jesus in worship, and Jesus come over and touch him, and he get up. I saw that happen to Daniel. I saw that happen to Ezekiel. I saw that happen to others. I didn't see anyone touch anybody and then fall down. In fact, I saw the opposite. You can be quote-unquote slain in the Spirit by being in worship. You can be in a place where you just fall down before God, but God is going to lift you up because he lifts up the humble. He resists the proud, but he, 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 he lifts up the humble. And you're humble when you fall before God in worship. God lifts you up. He was completely undone in God's presence. Now, this is not consistent with the humble carpenter of Nazareth that that John leaned on during the Passover meal. What's the difference? Well, it's the same person. It's just you're seeing God in all of his glory, like the Mount of Transfiguration. You're seeing God differently, but it's not as if God wasn't the same God when he walked the earth as the humble carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what he chooses to reveal of his person has more to do with our hearts than our eyes. If your heart is open to God, you'll see things about Jesus that other people have never even considered. Your heart has to be open. Your life has to be open. You know, there are people in this world today, and some of us may be among them, They're living their life like a very unwise person who goes out into their front yard and digs a hole. And every time they leave their house in the morning, they fall in it. Oh, we've dug so many holes in our lives. Deficits, problems, addictions, habits, sinful behaviors. We dig that hole and we dig more holes and we fall into these holes, but we dug the hole. Oh, yes, and we have a sin nature, but we fed it. When we end up in that hole, we say, how did I get here? Well, you you had the shovel. What's the answer? Fill that hole. Whatever is lacking in your life, whatever deficit, whatever openness to sin you have, fill it with Jesus. When you fill your life with Jesus, and especially those areas of our lives that we've tripped into and fallen into so many times, an amazing thing happens, you walk right over it. (gasps) Yeah. You see, what you and I, what we need to do is recognize that the more of Jesus we have in our lives, the more victorious we will be over our lives. Listen, most people go through life not considering these things. You are not among them because you're here this morning. And you're considering these things and you're searching your heart. and You're allowing God to search your heart. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, um, I want to be more like Jesus. I don't want those holes in my life. What am I going to do about that? Well, God is encouraging you. I believe that's a word for you guys today. You know, that, that's important to do. Fill your life with Jesus. But as we come back to this. John was able to see Jesus differently because he opened his heart and his eyes. And Jesus reassured John, he's the same Lord that he knew as his friend. There's no need or reason to fear Jesus if you belong to him, amen? And yet he fell at his feet as dead because the glory was too much. Listen, only Jesus, only only Jesus is fearfully divine and approachably human. But you need to know him first. Well, Jesus declared himself to be God, the eternal creator, when he said, I'm the first and the last. Earlier in this chapter, John told us that he told them that he was the Alpha and the Omega. It's the same thing, the A, the Z, the first and the last. And by saying that, Jesus is saying, I am the creator of all things. The first and the last. The beginning God, that's Jesus. And he also declared himself to be the glorified Christ because in verse 18 he said, I am the living one. I was dead. How many people can say that? I was dead. It, it almost seems like an antithetical statement. I mean, I was dead. Implication? I'm no longer dead. Well, we're all going to say that someday. Can I hear an Amen. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And behold, he says of himself, I am alive forever and ever. Now, the beauty of this is that he died and rose again, victorious over sin and death, because he goes on to say, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He has dominion over death and Hades, which had dominion over us. What a beautiful revelation of Jesus. Finally, and as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, In the closing verses of this chapter, in verses 19 and 20, we read, Right therefore, we mentioned this last week, Right therefore, what you have seen, and what is now, and what will take place later. And I mentioned this in our opening last week, that Jesus is here giving John an outline of the entire book of Revelation, because what you have seen is what we just studied. Chapter 1. What is now is what's covered in chapters 2 and 3, the church of Jesus Christ. And what will take place later is verses, excuse me, chapters 4 through 22. So chapters 2 through 3, what is what is now? And then what will take place later, the second coming of Jesus Christ, chapters 4 through 22. That's the outline. It's how we, we break down the book and how we begin to understand it. And I just want to be consistent here for a minute. Remember I said that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not several revelations, it's one. Think about it. The first section, chapter 1, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is. We've, we've been studying that this morning together. Then you have what is now, but that's just a revelation of the church of Jesus Christ. That's still a revelation of Jesus. He's the head we're the body, amen? And then what will take place later is a revelation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So you see how the whole book is, again, one revelation? And then finally, and I've alluded to it already, we've talked about it, so we'll just mention it here. In verse 20, we're told, there's our interpretation, the mystery. Now, see, that's the thing, it was a mystery. That is, you don't know. You can't find this in the Bible. But you find it in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the messengers of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. No need to struggle over that interpretation. Brothers and sisters, as we open our hearts to receive communion now, we have a wonderful opportunity to empty our lives that we might make room in our hearts for more of Jesus. Oh, Pastor Tim, I've known Jesus for 40 years. Well, you know what? I've known him for about 36. But you know what? There's still things in my life that need to be emptied out. And worse than that, there's holes I've I've dug and and, and been digging in my life, uh, allowing room for even more sin and and terrible things. And I need to fill them up. I need to fill them with Jesus. I I need to empty my life that I might be filled with him. And that's what communion's all about. So as we worship, the ushers are going to come forward and we're going to receive the elements. We ask you to come up and get them and return to your seat. And when you do, wait for us and we'll receive it together. But before I do, let me just say, if you're not interested in receiving Jesus this morning, then please don't come to the table. Why would you fill your life with with something that symbolizes Jesus if you don't want Jesus in your life? That's a farce. That's, that's, That's the wrong way, and the Bible talks about doing that unworthily. But please, don't stay away from the table today. I encourage you, today is the acceptable day of salvation. Come to Jesus If you don't know him, what better way to receive him than to receive communion? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the revelation that reveals you to us. We've learned so much, even just this morning, and we look forward to learning more about who you are. But if we know nothing more than we already learned today, we know this. We need more of you in our lives. We need you in our lives And if we have you in our lives, we need more of you in our lives. And so as we receive communion, Lord, may we open our hearts to you. Completely, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.